Real people. Real opinions. Real talk radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. I did put up a tweet there during the week that got a huge reaction, and this is in relation to, I decided to watch, actually on Ashland's recommendation, the Jimmy Savile, uh, the British Horror Story, which is on Netflix currently at the moment. And I have to say, as much as I believe it's quite traumatising to watch, um, it's an experience to watch. And it just shows you how one man, James Wilson, Vincent Savile, as he was born and baptised, um, basically was ignored by the world while he abused minors anywhere between the age of five and 70 years of age, he abused people. And there were so many clues along the way and he practically admitted it and yet it was ignored. But one man that didn't ignore it was Marion Jones, who was a lead investigator at the time. And in the show, you will see uh, where he took this. And he joins me on the air. Good afternoon to you, Marion. Uh, hi, good to talk to you. Uh, I, I just want to go back in time, if I can, a little bit. I suppose, like everybody else, you know, kind of post-2000s, you would have thought Jimmy Savile was this wonderful man who raised up to 40 million euro, or, well, should I say pounds, British pounds, for charities all over the UK, cared about people, cared about those who were vulnerable. And, and like everybody else, you would have saw him as this wonderful human being. No, I'd seen him when I was in my teens at Duncroft, the weird institution that my aunt ran for young, intelligent girl criminals. Um, and I thought he was odd. Uh, I thought he was hiding something. I didn't think he was evil, but behind the catchphrases, the boys and girls, and all these phrases that he would say, as it happens, and behind the shell suit, I felt there was something he was hiding. And, that, and, was, and where was that? Was that back in the seventh in the in the nineteen seventies? This is back. This is back in the seventies. Yeah. So I'm in my teens. We go to visit my aunt quite regularly, and my grandmother was there as well. Uh, and uh, we are we come across him quite often there. Or we see his car there, and I just sort of felt that what you were seeing wasn't what you were getting. Somehow that there was some slight disconnect. I know a lot of other people who met him over the years had the same impression. Do you know what, what struck me when I watched the documentary? At one stage, he drove the Silver Shadow Rolls Royce or whatever it was, the open top one, I'm not too sure. And so he's driving into the, the grounds of this, uh, of Duncroft in this car. You know, this man who's a millionaire, who's a superstar. And you go first, you're, the first thing that comes into you says, what's he doing there? And, and that, to me, kind of struck me as I seen him. You know, he'd gone into an area where there are people who are vulnerable, where there's poverty as well, of course. And he's driving in this fancy schmancy brand new car worth, God knows how much money in those days. Very few people would have had a car like that. And you're thinking, what's he doing there? Yes. I mean, it was slightly odd because once a year they would have these big garden parties there to raise money. And there would be film stars and politicians and minor royals there. But that was once a year. He just kept turning up. Mm -hmm. In relation to the royals, you know, the programme led us to believe, of course, that the royals had a huge amount of faith in him, including Prince uh, Charles, Lady Diana, uh, Prince Philip. He seemed to have a very good relationship. Almost, he was actually advising them at one point. Yes, I mean, uh, Di um, referred to uh, Savile as Charles's mentor, and I think the letters that are revealed in the programme very much back that up. It's somebody who's looking for advice from an older man with more experience of the real world, 
to be his guide. And bizarrely, he's even brought in to provide marriage guidance to Charles and Di, which obviously didn't work out very well. No, clearly not. At what point did you say to yourself, there's something up with this guy, there's too many, you know, kind of red flags here, I need to do something about that. And we saw that in the Netflix documentary, the, the point where you were in, in the office and you're putting these pictures on the wall. At what point was that? And what was the turning point that made you feel, I need to do something here? The first thing that made me wake up was in 1990, where the journalist Lynn Barber, who's very highly respected, and all journalists used to read her interviews every week, uh, she referred to the fact that there's been a long-standing rumour in Fleet Street that most journalists believed that Savile was a paedophile. Now, that was out of the blue for me. I didn't know that. But that immediately made me think, what was going on at Duncroft? Why was this guy who was nearly 50 years old taking 14-year-old girls out in his Rolls Royce? That, at that point, I thought, ah, okay, what I saw at Duncroft fits, actually, with somebody who is an offender, an abuser, rather than a kindly uncle figure. And, of course, he was making promises to these girls, uh, Karen uh, yeah. White included, that if they came out in the car with him and obviously did favours for him, I don't want to go into too much in daytime radio because mm. I don't want to be too graphic about it, but that he would get them and he would bring them into the BBC and get them on top of the pops. Uh, which he did. You know, mm. He brought them in and got them on uh, Clunk Click, which was a predecessor of Jim Will Fix It. They also felt under a pressure that if they didn't go along with it as an individual, the group would be punished. So that, you know, if you are the girl who he's fixated on at that moment, if you do not do what he wants and the whole group doesn't go to television centre as a result, you will be punished by the rest of the girls. Because, because you, did, you, because you didn't do it. Yeah. Yes. And, and to remind people, these yeah. girls were aged anywhere between, I suppose, 10 and 15 years of age. No, they were, they were mainly 14 and 15. They yeah. were 14 and 15-year-olds uh, yeah. at, at, at that time. Yeah. Okay. And, and just to, to, to let people know, Duncroft, I suppose, it, it would have been a kind of home for, would it be, would it be fair to say, wayward girls? Well, it started off as something even more specialised than mm. that. Uh, there were things called approved schools in Britain. Yeah. And they were really prisons for under 16-year-olds. Mm. And most of those were for boys, some were for girls. This was a sort of elite institution in a stately home, but with bars on the upstairs windows. The girls were often drugged if they misbehaved. But in a way, they were, it was almost like a finishing school. Yeah. Meets a... Uh, yeah. It's a prison. It's, it's, it, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't believe it if you haven't seen it. Yeah, but well, I think we all got a good visual of it, obviously, in the documentary as well. And and by the way, it wasn't only there in Duncroft. He was going. He he was also going to many hospitals, which people thought it was strange that here's this celebrity giving up his time on a regular basis to work in a hospital where he had access, obviously, to people who were vulnerable. But okay, so you started on this road of obviously investigating it. And where did that lead you? Because I suppose you might have come across a lot of dead ends because you suggested that there was yeah. no evidence, although everybody knew there was no evidence. I was in the wrong bit of the BBC. I was in news and current affairs. It's the people in Top of the Pops and Radio 1 that knew where the bodies were buried. And I didn't know any of those people. But I came across them again in 2000 uh, after the Louis Theroux uh, documentary, which led to everyone talking about was Savile a paedophile. Well, he practically admitted he was a paedophile. Yeah. And it comes up again then 
I was investigating the way the Catholic Church in Britain covered up uh, child abuse. And here in Ireland, uh, too, yes. yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So Cormac Murphy O'Connor and his cover-ups uh, of child abuse. And in the course of that, because Savile was a uh, Catholic, you would hear rumours about Savile coming up again. So it started keep coming up again in the early 2000s. And then there was an early social media site called Friends Reunited, which was to re- reunite old school chums. And on there, by about 2008, 2009, I started seeing stuff about Duncroft, which made me think that they were talking about Savile as an abuser. In code, it wasn't very clear, but it was starting to zero in. Yeah, they were, talk- they were all talking about the same individual. And what was it, was it striking in the Louis Theroux documentary you mentioned already, a lot of people started talking about it after that, was first his very strange relationship oh. with his mother. Um, and not only the strange relationship with his mother, but the fact that when he was asked about the, you know, the media speculation that he was a paedophile, his own words were, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. Yeah. And yeah. for somebody, to, like if somebody made an allegation against me or you and said, yeah. I think you're a paedophile, you would deny it just down to the ground. I mean, that you would just stop the conversation immediately. But he didn't. He, you know, he said, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. And, and I thought that was the strangest answer for anyone to give to, a, you know, an allegation which is so serious. I mean, the thing that the documentary didn't get to was the level of knowledge at the BBC. So right back to 1973, the controller of Radio 1 and Radio 2, one of the most powerful people in the BBC, knew that Savile was taking back underage girls to his flat. He admitted as much. All they were worried about was that it wouldn't come out in the papers. And that goes right the way back to 1973. And then again, you see... When Savile is dying in 2010-11, there's knowledge at very high levels of the BBC. They decide not to make an obituary of him at first because of the dark side, uh, as it's referred to, of Jimmy Savile. They say it's impossible to make an honest film about Jimmy Savile so soon after he dies. It'll have to be later on that we can, you know, we can tell the whole truth. So there is knowledge there throughout at senior levels in the BBC. And that is really, truly shocking. And not only that, you know, Savile, before he died for the last kind of 10 years of his life, seemed to want to make friends with senior police officers um, who he was basically hanging out with. So he had a lot of friends in high places and there were accusations made against him. They went to the CPC, of course, and and those accusations were any of those charges were dropped because they said there was no evidence. It seemed quite bizarre that every every door seemed to constantly keep getting shut all the time. And you're right to, to suggest that people who worked with him didn't know there was something creepy about it or going on would be bizarre. Yeah, and, and as you say, he built this protective network. Senior police officers, uh, Prince Charles, Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister. If you're a junior police officer and you've got some 14-year-old girls coming to you and saying they've been attacked are you really going to take on somebody who has so much power and so much influence, literally the highest people in the land? And it wasn't just him, and we'll talk about that in a second, but obviously when when the scandal broke in relation to him after he died, many other names were brought into it as well of other individuals. And of course, as we all know, then there was a lot of court cases after that with other people going to jail. But it, it did show you at that time from the 1970s, certainly when television became more popular, uh, right up to, I suppose, the mid-2000s, that people had too much power, too much celebrity status and abused that celebrity status. Yes. And he, of course, not only did he build this protective network, he deliberately targeted institutions. And that's from most paedophiles. You know, they might operate in a school or something. 
But he went out and looked for institutions full of vulnerable people whose word would not be believed. Hospital patients, care homes, you know, all these sorts of things. And it became apparent to us, you know, before the, the story was stopped by the BBC, that there were probably every institution he'd been in, he was probably abusing. We thought there might be 100 victims. Uh, that turned out to be a huge underestimate. Okay, so in 2011, I suppose, when the kind of, when the story, the whole story broke, of course, you know, you had been working along the news night editor, Peter Rippon at the time. And they were bringing out this obituary, I suppose, the BBC were bringing out this obituary. So they didn't want this scandal coming out immediately. But, but, but they knew at that time, but yet you were told to kind of drop it at that stage. We were. Uh, the same day that the BBC published its Christmas schedules, which were wall-to-wall Jimmy Savile tributes, Jim will fix it, specials, you know, obituary programs. The whole Christmas was going to be a Jimmy Savile Christmas. On that same day, our investigation was stopped. It was supposed to go out on December the 7th. Obviously, if our investigation had gone out, they would have had to stop all the tributes. Uh, and they took a decision to, well, they described it as re-nosing the investigation. And what they said was, it wasn't a story that Savile was a paedophile. It wasn't a story that Savile was a paedophile at the BBC. It would only be a story if there'd been a technical failing by the Crown so, Prosecution Service. So when you got that email from Peter Rippon basically telling you not to be working on other elements of the investigation because it's not strong enough without confirmation... So these lovely programmes went out all about how wonderful Jimmy Savile was. And in the meantime, on December the 5th, the Surrey police were actually investigating historic, historic allegations against him. Yes. I mean, the, uh, myself and Liz McKean uh, and Anna Livingston, we were, we were the team who were working on this. You know, we fought for weeks to try and get this turned around. We just could not believe that the BBC was not going to run our investigation and instead was going to glorify this paedophile. Mm-hmm. Sorry, sorry, I missed that bit. Sorry. Um, and in relation to the CPS, of course, you know, they informed you as well that it decided they weren't going to prosecute Savile because they didn't have the evidence at the time. And that for you, then at that point, that you'd done so much work in this and you knew at that stage what he was, that must have been so frustrating. Well, I mean, I never believed in the BBC saying they were re-nosing the investigation, it was obvious that the story was Savile was a paedophile, and it was obvious that the BBC were determined not to run that because it would be very damaging to the BBC. So it was an excuse to say, oh, it depends on the CPS and so on. This was all an excuse. That wasn't what it was really about. I, I, and it was either way, look, you, well, not you personally, but of course, Newsnight ended up with egg in their face because the Sunday Mirror then reported that the investigation was axed, uh, you know, and obviously then it would have clashed with the, the, the Jim Will Fix a tribute show as well. So at that point, then you decided, you know, we can't let this sit. So you, you kind of basically just gave the story away. Yes, gave it to ITV. In fact, uh, Mark Williams Thomas was working with us as a sort of advisor on this story. He wanted to run the story elsewhere, and I was very happy for him to do that. I handed over everything to him. You didn't want, in other words, it wasn't that you were doing it for the glory. You just wanted this man exposed, and that was the end of the, it. The story had to come out. Yes, the story had to be out there. I mean, I was appalled. Uh, you know, I didn't watch the tribute over Christmas, but I could just imagine what the women who'd spoken to us, what they would make the BBC doing that. Uh, you know, it was a real, it, it really was a letdown for those people.
I mean, there were so many people who had allegations against him, and yet the BBC went ahead with these wonderful programmes coming up to Christmas, yeah. you know, where you've got this guy, this old man sitting there, has about that then, and everybody's supposed to be lauding over him as what a wonderful human being he was. Um, and at that point then, I suppose, once the ITV documentary went out, and the evidence of Karen White and and many others who were in that documentary were mentioned in that documentary, I suppose then, the, the you know, the obviously all the allegations started coming in because people had cooperating stories and other people who would have been in Duncroft or in the hospitals or the people he yeah. had access to at the time all started coming forward. And it was just astonishing, the the numbers involved. Well, I mean, the official list is something like 450, but that's just the people who came forward. You've got to realise a lot of people would have died in the meantime. There are other people who came to people like me saying, I don't want this to go in the official list, but I need, you, need to tell you what happened to me. Uh and most people do not report, you know, abuse and so on. I think, you know, we can talk about thousands, a thousand, two thousand people who he probably abused over the course of decades. And many of those people may, I mean, I, I know the Netflix documentary. I, I, what, what did you personally think of the Netflix documentary, by the way? I, I thought it was very good. I thought, um, I thought it was well I, put together. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it was very well put together. Uh, what I can't believe is how popular it's been. I thought it would be a niche program, but it's sort of number one on the Netflix UK list and so on. There are more people watching that than Bridgerton, which is astonishing. To yeah, me. But, but you know what? It's disturbing to watch. Uh, and But I say to people, it is, you must watch it. You have to watch it, no matter how disturbing you might believe it is, because it's a fact of life that these kind of individuals got away with and still get away with these kind of actions. So it is it is mandatory watching. Well, you must yeah, watch I'm, it. Yeah, I mean, the still get away with is the key bit. So in Ireland, you brought in the Children First Act in 2015. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if you are in a... a, a a senior position and somebody reports abuse to you, it is the law in Ireland that you've got to report it. Oh, it's a criminal offence if you don't, yes. We don't in Britain. There is no offence in Britain. So if you are the head of a church or a school or the BBC and someone reports abuse to you, the best thing to do is to turn a blind eye. If it becomes a real problem, you can give them a nice reference and they can go off to another school. And I'm afraid unless we catch up with Ireland on this and bring in something like the Children First Act, uh, we are not going to safeguard our children for the future. That was another thing that was surprising in the documentary that I I saw that they only had set up that unit, uh, which basically investigated paedophilia in 1995. So in other words, it kind of suggested we didn't care about the well-being of children in the UK and probably here in Ireland too, probably until much later, to be honest with you, uh, until 1995. Yeah, I mean, certainly Ireland has had its share of uh, abuse scandals as well, as has Britain. But at least you've tried to do something about it now. I mean, that act came into full power in, I think, 2017. We've got nothing here. Nothing here to protect children from... So there's nothing stopping another Jimmy Savile appearing somewhere? No, there's nothing nothing stopping an institutional abuser. You know, know, if you are the head of a school, you should go to prison if you conceal abuse. Uh, but that doesn't, that's not going to happen in Britain. And has there been suggestions or has anybody been pushing for that legislation? Well, yes. I mean, you know, I, obviously I pushed for it very hard after Savile and it looked like we might make progress, but it all sort of disappeared again. It, uh, it disappeared nowhere. Uh, and while, you know, other countries have got on with this, you know, including Ireland... Uh, we are way behind in the UK. Well, maybe this programme, the Netflix programme, is going to start the conversation again. I think it has started the conversation again. And maybe that's the right time, probably, to get involved in that. 
Yeah, well, I hope so. I definitely hope so. It would be some good that could come out of all of this. I mean, in relation to the documentary as well, you also mentioned in your own Twitter account as well that many people have now come forward because of the documentary and the exposure the documentary has given Jimmy Savile. Yeah, it, it happens every time. You know, we, I now know about another children's home in Staines, about a, you know, a mile from uh, Duncroft. I know about more kids who are abu- abused at Broadmoor who hadn't come forward before. And these are people who are not in the system. They're not in the 400-odd odd names that are in the system. You know, people see something and they say, look, I just want to tell you this. I don't want anything done about it. You know, they're not trying to claim money or anything like that. They just want to tell somebody what happened. And in, in relation to the money, I mean, I know a lot of people were paid compensation. And, and I'm, not, I'm not suggesting for a minute people did it for the money. Uh, but what I'm saying is Savile's estate left a fair bit of money. I'm assuming that was the money that would have been used to compensate many of his victims. Yes, it was. And it's not, it's not huge numbers who claimed compensation. It's relatively small amount of numbers so that, that actually came forward and asked for compensation. You know, the vast bulk of the 400 never got anything. Um, and certainly the 1,000 or 2,000 that I suspect is the true number, you know, they, you know, they, you know, they're not, they didn't come forward for the money. They, you know, they got nothing out of this. Do you believe there should, be, there should have been a posthumous trial? It's very difficult to do that. I, don't I, I know, think... it's very rare, by the way, but, but in, in such a case with such a prolific paedophile with so many victims... And, you know, and, and the world's attention on it, certainly. And by the way, of course, that was the start of many different cases in the UK uh, that we saw over the, the following four or five years of in, other individuals who worked on television. I, I think it's more important that those people like Rolf Harris were prosecuted for their offending. I think that was more, more important than trying to create a trial of somebody who was dead. You know, mm. it was vital that the truth got out and that people knew what happened. Uh, but I don't think there was any point going through some sort of trial procedure. Mm. In relation to, to Jimmy Savile's family, um, and I, I know he does have family, it must have been quite difficult for them to see what their own brother had become and what he was. I mean, I don't know if they've ever been interviewed or ever spoke out about it. Have you ever spoken to them? Or, uh, yeah, no, there, there, were, there, were, um, there was a nephew and various people, and their initial reaction was denial, uh, but then it moved to acceptance, and then quite often... You know, saying that they believed to some extent they had been victims of him as well. So it was a, a gradual process. I mean, there are still people out there who think Savile is innocent. You know, every time anything like this happens, they get in touch and they say all these people have made up all these claims. Uh, Savile has been unfairly attacked. Uh, you know, I suppose there are just fans of his who just cannot accept. When you watch, the, the when reality. you watch the archive footage of him. You couldn't yeah. believe that for a minute. And the things but he they, says and the, the very inappropriate way. I mean, that, that scene, by the way, when Gary Glitter is sitting on the sofa beside him. Yeah. Uh, two of the most prolific paedophiles sitting together yeah. live on television talking about which girl they were going to have. And looking at these girls, they were all under the age of 18, which girl they were well, going to have after the show. Yeah. I mean, that was a key moment for us when we found that footage. I mean, that was a really important moment because, you know, these girls were saying they had gone to the BBC that they'd been there with Glitter and with Savile. You know, finding that footage was a key moment. You knew that they were telling the truth because there they were. And you could recognise girls because we had photographs of them at that time, at that age, at Duncroft, and we could see it was the same girls. Mm-hmm. 
Karen White, of course, was one of those girls who was on Clunk Click at the time. I think that was Clunk Click, that particular programme, wasn't it? It was. It was. You know, yeah. I, I'd never heard of it. I didn't remember it at all, but it was a sort of predecessor of Jim O'Fixit. I do vaguely remember it, yeah, I do vaguely remember it. It was an awful show. Uh, <laughs> but, but in saying that, uh, you know, it's been wonderful talking to you, but I, 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 has this consumed your life, by the way? No, not at all. I mean, I'm the editor at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. We do really important work here uh, with major broadcasters and with major outlets real public interest journalism um and that's my priority working at the bureau right. um you know it's it, you know I'm, I'm a journalist first and foremost uh, i'm not an obsessive yeah okay because i i know when these kind of things happen sometimes even from my point of view even on radio sometimes you get very interested in a story you take a personal interest and you you're almost determined to make it happen sometimes they can consume you you know what i mean yeah, I mean, it was it was vital for me to get that story out there. And yeah, I do, you know, I do get obsessed with stories and trying to get them out there. Um, but that's different from letting something take over your life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's I'm I, I'm a classic investigative journalist. Well, look, I think I think the Brit people of Britain and certainly maybe of the world, even because of course, you know, the, the Jimmy Savile story is a worldwide story, and while it did it did it it kind of led to the investigation of many other people as well because it opened their yeah. eyes to what these people can be. And I think they have you to thank, to be honest with you, because I think you're one of the first people who have, were brave enough to actually get out there uh, and push this story forward. Um, so I think they have you to thank for it. So uh, I appreciate it, and I think on behalf of everybody, we appreciate what you did. Well, that's, that's very kind of you. I mean, I just hope that Britain follows Ireland and brings in proper legislation to protect children. Well, listen, it's been lovely talking to you. Uh, Marianne Jones, thank you very much indeed, and I appreciate you coming on the air today. Thanks. To Only for those of you who haven't seen the programme, by the way, it's on Netflix. It's a wonderful programme, a wonderful programme. And I say that behind the fact that I also say it's disturbing to watch. This man who the world thought was the most unbelievable, wonderful person because he raised so much money for charity. Every time you'd see him on television, he was doing another marathon or another jog or another fundraising event. He was friends of the royals. He was friends of all the celebrities. He could do no wrong. He was on top of the pops every Thursday night. How's about that then? Now then, now then. Everybody knew his catchphrases. He was always known, the long blonde hair, the cigar, cigar and the gold jewellery hanging off him. And we thought he was giving all his money away to these vulnerable people. But the reason he was doing it was so he could be close to vulnerable people. Now we all know exactly why he was doing it. Because he wanted to be close to vulnerable people. People he could take advantage of, particularly young girls. 14 and 15 year old girls who he took off in his car. Performed sexual acts with them. All for a promise of getting them on the television. And that's exactly what he did. For anybody who denies that Jimmy Savile was nothing more or nothing less than a paedophile... There's something wrong with you, because if you watch that documentary, you would clearly see in his own words what he did. He had practically for years admitted it. But the bigger story really was the BBC and the people who knew him. And who was it from the Sex Pistols? Wasn't it Johnny Rotten? I can't remember his real name now. Went on an interview long before this investigation started and said that he was a paedophile. And he then, in turn, was banned from the BBC, from what I remember. And he was one of the first people to out him. Turned out he was right. Johnny Lydon, wasn't it? Johnny Lydon, that's right, yeah. Who is Johnny Rotten, wasn't that his nickname? Yeah, yeah, Johnny Lydon. And he actually said it during an interview, that Jimmy Savile 
was creepy, he was a dirty and he used bad language. And because of that, the BBC barred him and banned him. So people, everybody knew what Jimmy Savile was. People who worked with him all said, oh yeah, he's creepy, there's something weird about him. I mean, why why were people saying there was something weird about him, something creepy about him, knowing, and everybody, journalists, everybody knew what he was up to in the background, but nobody wants to say anything about it. Nobody wants to do anything about it. And it was only, sadly, it was only after he died. So he never faced a day or an hour or a minute in jail. Sadly, there was no justice. The only justice was his headstone was removed. And the money he left to in his estate, which I don't believe was much, I believe there was only four or five million in his estate, which is not a lot for an individual who'd been so famous for so long. I don't know what he was doing with his money. Um, sadly, his money um, went, a lot of it went to pay victims, to pay the legal costs, etc., of victims who took cases against uh, his estate. Anyway, it's a horrific story. Go watch it. It's a two-parter. It's about three hours long for the two parts. It's on Netflix at the moment. It's called Jimmy Savile, The British Horror Story. And it's well worth a watch. Real people. Real opinions. Real talk radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. Ireland's classic hit.